Bibles now, if you would please, and open them to Revelation chapter 13. I hope that you are enjoying this study in the book of Revelation. Uh, We've been interrupted quite a few times in these past few weeks, and so we're kind of moving slowly as we go through the book. But we are getting a chance to get uh, a comprehensive look at the Word of God here, a fairly comprehensive view of what we call end times theology. That's, for those of you that don't know, that's called eschatology. And really, it's one of the most controversial areas of Bible study. Uh, There are different interpretations, methods of interpretations uh, in the book of Revelation. And there are many people who think that when you read Revelation, that you really ought not to take things too seriously here. Uh, These are merely symbolic things and don't interpret the book literally. But uh, we do believe in taking, uh, where we can, a literal interpretation of the book of Revelation. Now, there are some people who believe that you take these things symbolically because uh, the world is uh, getting better and better all the time. Uh, you wouldn't actually believe this yourselves probably, but there are people who think that in, in the end that the gospel is going to uh, engulf the entire world and the world eventually will get better until the world is conquered by the gospel of Christ. Now, I do believe that Christ is ruling in his kingdom right now, but I believe that it's a spiritual kingdom that he rules in, and one day that is going to become a physical, literal kingdom upon this earth. And before that happens, though, I, I believe that the church is going to be raptured from this world, and then a terrible time of tribulation will occur, and that tribulation is God's process of purging the world of the curse. Now, in chapter 6 of Revelation, we saw a seven-sealed scroll that was taken by Christ, and he, as he breaks each of the seals on the scroll, there is a terrible judgment on the earth that takes place. Now, that scroll is actually uh, the redemption plan for this world, and we've kind of gotten away from that in the past few weeks, but that's really what uh, this part of Revelation is unfolding. It's the opening of that scroll. But we've come to a place in the story where we're in a, a little bit of an interlude, and the action has stopped, and Uh, the, The book goes back and explains some things that are taking place. So seven seals have been broken, and the seventh seal was broken uh, at the end of the 11th chapter. Now that trumpet, I believe, or or I should say there are seven trumpets also in this seventh seal, and the seventh trumpet is the one that sounds at the end of... uh, Uh, Revelation chapter 13, and I think that that trumpet comes at the midpoint of the tribulation, about three and a half years in, and then begins uh, in our story here, this little interlude that we're talking about right now, and what we've been studying here is the result of a war that took place in heaven, and this is where Satan was cast down to the earth, and when he's no longer allowed access to heaven, that's when he knows that the end is near, and so in his great wrath, he makes a last-ditch effort to defeat God. And this is where we see the rise of the Antichrist, and that's the beginning of chapter 13. And I believe that Satan is probably cast out of heaven at a time that coincides with the rapture of the church. So that means that as we look at the 13th chapter, we're actually going all the way back to the beginning of tribulation and then progressing on towards uh, the midpoint once again. Now, during that time, uh, this is when the Antichrist is solidifying his power by uniting all of the world's kingdoms against Christ. And by the time that that midpoint is reached, the Antichrist not only has control of all the world's kingdoms politically, but he's also gained hold of the world religiously. And in order to do that, he has to have a helper. 
Now, we saw that there was a beast that rises out of the sea in the first part of chapter 13, and that is a representative, or that beast is the Antichrist. And then in the last part of chapter 13, there's another beast that arises, and this man is a very powerful man, and this is the false prophet. And he's the one who comes to help the Antichrist consolidate his power. And so his function in the process is to unite the myriads of different religions that there are in the world, and he consolidates them into one religion, which is the religion of the Antichrist. Now, this part of chapter 13 that we're studying here for the past couple of weeks or past couple of lessons tells about how that happens, and that's what we've been discussing in those messages. So we need to go to the Scriptures now, and we're going to read once again this last part of Revelation 13, and this is the, the plan of religious consolidation as it starts to unfold. Now, if you'd stand with me as we look at God's Word, uh, verse number 11 in this 13th chapter And John writes, And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and spake as a dragon. And he exerciseth all the power of the first beast before him, and causeth the earth and them that dwell therein to worship the first beast, whose deadly wound was healed. And he doeth great wonders, so that he maketh fire to come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men, and deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by a sword and did live. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is six hundred threescore and six. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the time we... Uh, are able to come together tonight. We pray, Lord, that you would open up your word to us. Give us understanding. Help us, Lord, to see something that uh, will help us here in the study that we have tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Since our last lesson was a couple of weeks ago, I think that we do need to review a little bit and and sort of give it our bearings so that we can proceed on to the last part of this message. That's part number three. The last three verses of Revelation 13 are, uh, to some people, the most intriguing verses that you find in the book. And it seems like when you talk about Revelation, this is the part that most people know about, or it's one that they want more information about, or one that they want to comment about. We're going to get to those last three verses in just a few moments, but I want to review with you Uh, what came in the first two parts of the message uh, about this beast that the Bible says rises up out of the land. Now, the first thing that we had to say about him was that he is a false messiah. And there's some argument about whether you call the Antichrist a false messiah or whether you actually call this person the false messiah. And so people argue, well, which one of these is really the counterpart of Christ? Well, I think that there are characteristics and actions of the Antichrist that would make him the counterpart of Christ. And there are also some things that you can look at in the character of this, uh, of this false prophet. He also has some characteristics that would make him a counterpart. 
Now, if we look at the Antichrist as a king, we might say that he is the, uh, the uh, counterpart of Christ as a ruler. He's a political counterpart. In chapter 2, or chapter 6 rather, verse number 2, the Antichrist shows up riding on a white horse, and he comes out as a mighty conqueror. And we look in uh, Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, and there we see Christ coming out on a white horse, and he comes forth to conquer this conqueror, the Antichrist. And so the Antichrist then is mimicking Christ in his role as a ruler. But when you look at the false prophet, his actions... Uh, and description make him a counterpart of Christ, I think, in a religious role. Christ is the Lamb of God. And in verse number 11 of chapter 13, we see that this false prophet comes with those lamb-like qualities. And from that point, of course, the similarities between the two would very quickly diverge because when Christ comes, he comes and he speaks as God. He has the authority of Almighty God. When the false prophet speaks, he speaks with the authority of the dragon. Those are the words of Satan. And the Bible tells us that Satan was a liar from the very beginning. While Christ brings hope and brings eternal salvation, this false Messiah brings a false salvation. He is a lying tongue and the hope that he promises he can never deliver. So we talked about them, him as the false Messiah. Secondly, we spoke of his false mannerisms. Now, the fact that he is a lamb is very significant because at first he looks very harmless. He doesn't appear as a raging beast, but he looks very docile. He looks harmless, and that pretended meekness that he comes with is very beguiling. And that's the way that uh, Satan's false prophets most usually appear, and that's especially true when you look at false Christianity. Uh, Most Christians would be very quickly turned off if, if someone came shouting death and destruction to all infidels. Uh, Christians would be repulsed by that, but they're not repulsed when, they, when a false prophet comes along in a nice, slick package. They're not repulsed by smiling charlatans with uh, curly hairdos and self-help systems and promises of your best life now. Uh, they're not repulsed by a gospel that centers in them and this humanistic view where they want to satisfy all of their needs in life. And so what the false prophet does and what many false prophets do is that they try to draw people in uh, by great deception without actually pulling out all of the, all the heresies they, that they might uh, encompass in their teachings. They kind of hold those things back until they have a person hooked and that's when uh, the false, uh, the, the really terrible lies are brought out, the overt lies that seal a person's condemnation. And so that is the tactic of this false prophet who comes. He's okay with people's religion for a little while, as long as the true God is not worship. But finally, to make sure that the Antichrist will have all power politically and religiously, he turns all of that worship towards a new God. Now, the new God is actually an old God, uh, a God who's been displayed in many different forms throughout the centuries. He was Dagon and Molech and, and Baal and Ashtoreth in the Old Testament. He's Jupiter and Diana and Mars in the New Testament. He's been known by hundreds of names all throughout the centuries. And probably one that you recognize him most easily uh, by today is the name Allah, another false god. Well, I don't know what the name of the Antichrist is going to be, but I do know this, that uh, he is a representative of Satan, and he is described, Satan is described as the god of this world. So the false prophet then intends that he gets the entire world to worship the Antichrist. And in order to do that, he has to have a hook. 
He has to have a, a surefire method that's convincing, that uh, he can show people something that with wonder and amazement they will be convinced that the person that they ought to follow is actually the Antichrist. And they'll be interested in making that person God. So how does he do that? I mean, how does he hook people into following the Antichrist? Well, that's the third thing that we looked at, and that, were, that was false miracles. Now, I mentioned last time that perhaps false is not the way that we should describe them because the miracles that he performs may indeed be real, but they're the type of miracles that lead into a false direction. They're religious miracles, but they're miracles of a false religion. And they are convincing enough that they will draw attention away from the plurality of gods that people worship to the worship of one god. And, of course, as we said, that's the Antichrist, and he intends to be the god of all. Now, we notice in verses 14 and 15 that the consolidating factor that brings all of the religions of the world together is idolatry. There's an image that's set up, and unlike images of all the false gods that have ever come before this, this is an image that can actually speak. Now, Paul uh, in, in, in writing to the churches, spoke of dumb idols that can't speak. And he, he sort of writes that in a way that he's incredulous that anybody would believe in, in, a, in a false god like that, in an idol that couldn't speak. And yet people fall down and worship those kinds of idols. Well, what do you think would happen if you had an idol that could speak? I mean, if people fall down and worship idols that don't speak, how many more are going to begin to worship one that does speak? And that is the deception of this false prophet. He makes an image that can speak. Now, perhaps you may think that people today are too sophisticated to believe in such a thing. Uh, Nobody would ever go back and do what heathens in the ancient world did, and that's to worship those kinds of idols. So you think nobody's going to worship an idol today. And yet, do you know that the biggest worshipers of idols in the world today are people who very clearly should understand why we shouldn't worship idols. Now, I think you may be surprised a little bit by the next comment that I want to make. Um, I think that anybody with good sense ought to have a healthy fear of Islam. I mean, ever since 9-11 and and the, the terrible tragedy, that gross display of hatred that Islam had towards our way of life, if you've got any sense at all, you're going to be cautious about getting too close to Islam. Now, that's why that uh, when you get on an airplane and somebody with a turban gets on, everybody looks up from their seats to see where that person is going, and you watch him all the way till he sits down. And uh, I know that you do that. I, I do that when I get on an airplane. And, and you can imagine, as I, I think I told you this once before, the surprise that I had when Gary and I went to Israel and we got on Turkish Airlines and nearly everybody on the plane's wearing a turban. So what do you do then? But I, I'm not saying those kinds of things to be, to be overly prejudicial, but that's just the way it is. I mean, just about every American, when you get on an airplane, you automatically become a racial profiler. And the reason you do that is not so much about the person, it's about the religion. And you know which people of the world mainly follow that type of religion. And so I know some of you might say, well, I don't think that way, I don't think like that. Well, you just wait to get on an airplane. You do exactly what I do. I know, I know all of you do. Now, you, th- those statements might be a little bit surprising, you think, to hear from me, but that's not really the thing I want to tell you that will surprise you. This is the thing that might surprise you, and that is that when Islam got its start uh, way back in the 7th century, uh, it was fueled by a reaction to idolatry. 
What Mohammed felt that he was compelled to do was to destroy idolatry. And so you'll notice today that Islam, uh, they don't worship idols in Islam. And yet those who say that they're Christian and should know better than anybody are the ones back in those days, still doing it today as a matter of fact, but back then they filled up the churches with idols. And so Mohammed felt compelled then to get rid of all the idols that were in the land. And that's one of the things that fuels, continually fuels this, this long hatred and animosity that Islam has towards Christianity. Now, what I, that does, I think, is to lend credence to the idea that Islam may not actually be the religion that takes over the world because Christianity is what leads the world in idolatry. Islam, I don't think, is going to be the center of worship for the Antichrist. Apostate Christianity will be front and center of, of the Antichrist religion, and that will drag and convince all others to come along with it. Now, today, of course, you have Roman Catholicism, which is really a ready-made market for the religion of the Antichrist. And so all of the pieces are already in place for that, and it's not going to take very much to move people from a worship of dumb idols that can't speak into the worship of one idol that can speak. And I really believe, and this is what most, uh, most of the old, older commentaries believed about this as well, is that Roman Catholicism will be the center of all of that when it comes down to the last uh, days on this earth. So a problem has also arisen with those of us, when I say us, I don't necessarily mean this particular group, but I mean those who are non-Catholics, and they've actually, much of fundamental Christianity and evangelical Christianity has gotten closer and closer all of the time to idolatry. Now, an example of this is not long ago that Catholics and evangelicals alike were backing Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ. And the evangelical leaders, like the Billy Graham Association, said that the Passion of the Christ was one of the greatest evangelistic tools, if not the greatest evangelistic tool that the world has ever seen. I was listening to an interview with Ruth Graham, who is the daughter of Billy Graham, and she said that very thing. And so when that movie was playing, there were theaters all over the country that were sold out to evangelical groups that had brought up, bought up all the tickets to go see that. Now, what is that? Well, that is one of the biggest forms of idolatry that the world has ever seen. God forbid such things as that. But Christians have accepted that. And even if you look at church literature today, you look at Sunday school ministries and the material that they use, you'll find in those many depictions of Christ. They're Christians who hang pictures on their walls that are supposed to represent Christ, and that is nothing short of idolatry. And that's very clearly commanded against in the Scripture. Now, Satan is just subtle enough to slip in all of that idolatry so that when it comes time for this huge push to get all people to bow down to idols, they've already been conditioned for it. It's not such a great leap to think that they would do it. And so during the time of the tribulation, the Antichrist will become the god of the masses of the world and his rise to power is fueled by idolatry. And then, just like Nebuchadnezzar that we find in the Old Testament, threw people into a fiery furnace that would not bow down and worship his image, the exact thing is going to happen with the Antichrist. If you don't bow down to it, the word of God says here that a person would be killed. Now with that, that brings us uh, to these Last three verses in Revelation. Some of the most fascinating, I think, that are in the book. And we read here in verse number 16, 
And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is six hundred threescore and six. So we have a false messiah, false mannerisms, false miracles, and then fourthly we have the false mark. This is a mark that says that the bearer is a follower of one world religion called the religion of the beast. Now, again, this is one of the most intriguing portions of Scripture, and there's been a lot that's been written about this, much speculation about it. What is this mark? What's that mark for? So we're going to talk a little bit about that in the next few minutes. And so I want to give you just four headings here as we talk about uh, this mark of the beast. The first one is the brand of the beast. I think all of us know what a brand is. Uh, If I told you that you had to get branded before you could come into this church and you had to have a certain mark before you could worship with us, I think most of you would probably be very offended by that. You'd be turned off by it. You watch westerns on TV or you drive out into the country a little ways and there you'll uh, see livestock that have been branded. And, of course, they put the brand on a, on a cow or another uh, one of their livestock in order that they might tell that if that one gets free or gets away, that that particular animal belongs to that ranch. Now, sometimes you don't see a brand. You may see a tag in the ear of an animal, and that, uh, because some of the ranchers don't want to do that. They don't want to brand the animal, so some of them put a tag in their ear, and that really just kind of serves the same purpose. But for us to think about actually doing that to humans, that's just a little bit too scary for us. But did you know this, that when John recorded the Revelation... It wasn't really an unusual thing. A huge percentage of the people that lived then were actually branded. And that's truly remarkable because uh, 50% of the people in the ancient world were enslaved to the other 50%. And one of the things that they would do to identify different people, when you have so many that are mixed together, is they would put a brand on the slaves so they would know exactly who they belonged to. Now, when John was writing this, it really wasn't any kind of a stretch of the imagination, and and people could see how this could actually happen, how someone would receive a mark of a beast or be branded as a follower, or essentially that that person actually belongs to the Antichrist. Of course, we've seen that in modern times in World War II. Hitler did that uh, to the Jews. And, and today, you can still find Holocaust survivors that they can roll up a sleeve or show you a part of their body where they've actually received some kind of a brand or a tattoo. That's a number that says that they belong to a certain concentration camp. So, I, so what would you do then? I mean, what would it take to, to really get people to accept a brand like that? Well, I used to think that that would be a, a, a really hard thing to do. I mean, who, who, would, who would ever take a mark like that? But then in the last few years, you, you look at people, and it's not really an unusual thing for people to have tattoos, is it? I mean, you watch an NBA game, and you think that's a requirement. You can't play the game unless you have a tattoo. So if somebody could put a swirly design on all of that, then probably it wouldn't be too hard of a thing to get people uh, to be tattooed. I mean, you take somebody who will have their girlfriend's name tattooed on them because they love her. I mean, how much of a stretch is it to get the beast, the, the Antichrist, uh, tattoo on you because you love him? So it's, it's not really that far-fetched to think that people would do this. 
Well, an interesting thing that Paul says about marks, in in Galatians 6, verse 17, he said, From henceforth let no man trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Now, we've already said that the Antichrist is a counterfeiter, and wouldn't you know, he counterfeits Christ in this. Now, Paul, of course, was talking about marks that were in his body that were scars of the beatings and, and the scars for the faith that he had in Christ. A slave would have a brand of his master, and Paul bore in his body the marks of the Lord Jesus. He was a slave to the Lord Jesus. Now, again, that's not a self-imposed mark. That was a mark that was given by his enemies. But there's a sense in which that did identify him as a follower of Christ. Paul was a willing follower, and there are many followers of the Antichrist who will also be willing. And so from the greatest to the least, to the, from the rich and the poor, every person is going to have this identifying mark either in his hand or in his forehead. And that mark is required because the Antichrist has control over all of the world's commerce. And the scriptures tell us that no one is going to be able to buy or sell. A person won't be able to survive unless he takes that mark of the beast. And that's another thing that a few years ago we thought, well, that that couldn't happen. It's impossible for something like this to happen. But you know, when you go into stores today, that you don't even have to actually give them your card any longer. And some of the stores, you can just walk by and flash it, and, and it automatically deducted from your account. Each of us is carrying credit cards and, and identification cards that have a magnetic strip on the back, and that strip carries information about you a lot of information probably that you don't even know about. You know, whenever I go to Safeway, I'm always, I'm always kind of impressed that as soon as I get done buying my groceries and I hand the guy my card, he swipes it, and then just before I leave, he says, Thank you, Mr. Smith. I've never seen that guy before in my life. I don't have any idea who he is. But that guy swipes my card. He knows my name. He can look on there and find out what kind of cereal I like. I told you this morning that was, what was that, shredded wheat? He, he sees what kind of cereal that I like. He knows how many boxes I've bought ever since I've been trading there. I'm kind of impressed by that. I don't know. It might be a good idea, I think, if I did require you to get an identification card, something that you would swipe as you come in the door, and that way I'd never forget a person's name again. I mean, I, I see people that walk out the door, and, and I know I've seen them before, but I don't know what their name is. But if you just come into church, and you had to, I mean, you walked by, and the reader found out who you were, I'd get that information fed to me, and I would say, well, Brother Antoine Jamal Obi-Wan Kenobi, it's good to see you again. I mean, I, I'd know your name, so that'd be a good thing. But your whole financial life is, is, can be obliterated by somebody who tampers with or, or steals or, or reads the encryption on the cards that you carry. Now, I, I'm also amazed when I watch these cop shows on television and they've got a criminal there and with just a few keystrokes on a keyboard they can find out where that guy last used his credit card. Then they pull up all these things, these cameras that are all over the place, if you watch 24 or something like that, they've got a camera everywhere. I mean, the banks, the grocery stores, on the highways, and they know exactly where you are. And then, just about everybody has a cell phone, don't you? And in some parts of the world, they actually have a higher percentage of people that have cell phones than we do in the United States. 
And what do they put in those? Well, now uh, lots of the new phones, almost all the new phones, have a GPS chip in it. And so they can find out where you are any time of the day, find out where you're going, what you're doing. I mean, it's really not too hard to figure out why. uh, I mean, see how these kinds of things could happen. And so there may come a time when... When every waking moment, every sleeping moment of your day is being monitored, everything from what you ate for breakfast to the last time you had a bowel movement, they're going to know about it. So you have all of this technology that's out there, and you have a a system that's bent on controlling all the world from every conceivable angle. So what do you think would happen if that falls into the wrong hands? You see, we're just a, a skip, hop, and a jump away from making that a reality in our lifetime. And so it's no wonder that there are many people that are making predictions about the coming of Christ. And it's really no wonder why people are so intrigued about this. Then I was kind of interested in something else that happened a few weeks ago. And some of you may not like what I'm about to say here either. Uh, but it kind of illustrates the point I'm trying to make. Uh, a few weeks ago, we were, I think it was before Thanksgiving or at Thanksgiving time, um, we were in San Diego and uh, Jason had just come home from deployment. Uh, he'd been home about a month. And Jason and Clarissa have three cats. And they were having trouble with one of those cats because one of them was sneaking around and uh, this cat was kind of doing, doing its business on the, on the new furniture and on the rug. And, and so they were trying to break this cat, but they couldn't do it. So they decided they were going to get rid of it. Well, they called the shelters, and all the shelters were full, and they wouldn't take the cat. So they advertised it. I think they put it on Craigslist or something like that, and they still couldn't get anybody to take the cat. Well, they didn't want to euthanize it. So what Jason decided to do was he was going to take that cat, and he went to a neighborhood far away, and, and he dropped that cat. Well, the problem is there was a chip in that cat, and... Um, all that the f- guy who finds it has to do is have the chip read, and they find out who the owner is. So the whole moral of that story is you can't get rid of a cat. I mean, you either have to die, or, or the cat has to die, one of the two. I mean, you just can't get rid of a cat. So how much, then, of a stretch would it be that for all babies that are born, they put a chip under their skin, and as they grow up, they can tell everywhere that that, that child is gone, every movement that he makes. It's not too far out there. We're not talking about science fiction any longer. These are things that can happen. Now, the second thing we want to notice about this is the number and the name. Here the Word of God says you either have to have the number or the name of the Antichrist. Now, I want to ask you, how many of you know what that means? Nobody? Okay, we're all in the same boat because I don't know either. I mean, this is the sum total of everything that we have that the Bible says about this particular thing. We just don't know about this. Now, books and books and books have been written to try to explain it, but what you know about it is exactly the same that I know about it. I don't know the name of the Antichrist. I do know his number. I don't have it on my speed dial, but I do know his number. The number is 666. Now, I was kind of amused uh, a few months ago when Nathan got a new job, and uh, they gave him an ID badge, and it had about a 10 or 10 or 12 uh, number identification uh, that you know was his employee number but in the middle of that number it had 666 so I came home one day and uh, Nathan was very distraught and he tossed his badge on the on the table and he called up his employer and said they were going to have to give him a new employee number because he was not going to wear a badge that had 666 on it (laughs) I don't think you have to go that far just yet 
But that's the way people feel about this number. They're afraid of it. And whether that number is buried somewhere deeply in some big long number, whether it's in a telephone number, if it's on a hotel room or uh, some kind of design that might have it mysteriously interwoven into it, they're simply afraid of that number because what they read here in the Bible. Now, I want to show you something um, that uh, it's kind of a peculiar thing. Do you have that picture there? Uh, who's back there? CJ's back there tonight. This is the symbol that Thomas Nelson put on the New King James Bible, Thomas Nelson Publishers. And when this came out, the King James-only people, you know, always looking for a conspiracy somewhere and always against something, but uh, they said that there were three sixes that are embedded in this symbol. And so based upon that, they called the New King James translation a satanic Bible. Now, that's the kind of extremes that people will go to. I mean, they have all these theories about all these kinds of things, and they can see that number, you know, just about anywhere. But here's the truth of the matter. If someone consciously or unconsciously uses that number today, folks, it doesn't have any connection with the Antichrist. It's not going to have any meaning at all until this man of sin is revealed. I'm sorry if that doesn't jibe with all your conspiracy theories, but if you spend all your time looking for the Antichrist, you might just miss the Christ when he comes. Now, the third thing that we notice about this, and, and uh, it's kind of a peculiar thing, is the counterfeit calculations. Now, this is a place where we can really kind of get bogged down in just hours and hours of endless speculation about this number. And there are people who are determined that if they can find out what this number means, then they will know who the Antichrist is. And so they've devised all these various uh, methods to calculate what or figure out what the 666 means. And so one of the things that they do is look at letters of the alphabet. In the Greek language, uh, every, num every letter is assigned a numerical value, and so they'll use that and try to figure out the name of the Antichrist. Well, there's other, other um, languages that also have the same. For instance, we're all familiar with Roman numerals. And what are Roman numerals? Those are letters. And so 666, written in Roman numerals, is DCL... D-C-L-X-V-I. And there have been people that have taken that and tried to figure out uh, and, and signed uh, some other kind of value to that or twisted all around to figure out who the Antichrist might be. And then a few years ago, there were people who tried to take our alphabet and assign numerical values to it. And that's something, of course, we don't do with the English language. But they came up with this theory that uh, A equals 101, B equals 102, C equals 103, on and on and on as you go down towards the end of the, ant uh, of the alphabet. Well, it just so happens that when you take the name Hitler and you take the English language like that and add it up, it comes up to 666. So what you can do... You can, you can twist things around where you could even make your mother-in-law the Antichrist. Uh, I mean, if you needed more proof, I mean, you could actually make it, uh, you know, find it there. So there's all these counterfeit calculations. But the truth of the matter is, if you come up with something, somebody's name, and you swear by that name, then you're as false and as far off base as the false prophet. Now, the fourth thing that I want to mention about his number is this. Six is always short of seven. Now, the 18th verse says, Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is six hundred threescore and six. Now, throughout the book of Revelation, we've seen the number seven. 
In chapter 1, verse number 4, there were seven spirits that were before the throne of God. And those seven spirits represented the fullness of God. We also saw that there were seven candlesticks, and that represented the seven churches of God. There were seven uh, stars, and those represented seven pastors. There are seven seals that are on redemption scroll, and that is God's perfect plan for uh, for. Uh, lifting the curse from the world. There are seven trumpets and there are seven vials of wrath that come after that that we'll study just a little bit later on. So seven represents the fullness of God. But here we see man. And the scripture says the number of man is six. And the best of all men will only amount to a six. Man-centered theology is wrong because it never gets higher than a six. Now, I want you to listen to what W.A. Criswell uh, commented about this. He says, there is only one thing about it that we know, and this is, six is the number of a man. Six falling short of perfect seven. Man was created on the sixth day. He is to work six out of seven days. A Hebrew slave could not be a slave more than six years. Fields were to be sown not more than six years, and then they were allowed to, to rest on the Sabbath. Six is the number of a man. There is a trinity of sixes, six, 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 six raised through three decimal points, six units, six tens, and six hundreds. All that I can say in the present light is this. The beast in his number represents the ultimate of all human ingenuity and competence. The most mankind will ever be able to attain to is beneath the perfect seven, always a six. With himself a six, with his national government a six, with his laws a six, with the whole program by which he seeks to make an Eden in this world and a millennium among mankind, always that deafening, defeating, discouraging six. When we come to the end of the way, the book says here it is still a six. The height of man's arrogance and the height of man's fall and the ultimate of man's self-will is still one short, a six, a six, and another six. This is the number of a man, six, six, six. Age, discouragement, death, failure, sin, war, destruction, hatred. The book says that we'd never get beyond them. And so there that is. I mean, I I have no idea what it all means. Someday that number 666 will have terrible significance. Now, in the 18th verse, it says that those who have wisdom can count the number of the beast. And I think that that means that the redeemed of God will recognize what that number means when the time comes. God's going to give his people the ability to see through it. And so while the Antichrist is deceiving people, and maybe uh, in a way that uh, will be secretive, people might, or he might fool people into receiving the number, I don't know exactly how that's going to be done, but God's people are, are going to be able to see through that. Now, there are some people that are going to be saved during the tribulation time. Even though all commerce is controlled by the Antichrist, government is controlled, religion is controlled, if possible, the Antichrist would control the very air that's breathed. And anybody who receives or will not receive the mark of the beast is going to be killed. And if they're not directly caught and killed, then they're going to starve to death because they haven't received that number. Not a morsel of bread is going to be sold without a person having that number. And then there will be neighbors that are waiting to turn other neighbors in that don't have the mark of the beast. But then again, there are those that are saved during the tribulation time and they will bear in their bodies not the mark of the beast, but the mark of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And they're going to die holding out faithful to the very end. They will never receive this mark. And so their reward that they receive for it is not a temporary failing promise that the Antichrist gives and the false prophet gives, but it is the everlasting promise of the one who is called faithful and true. He's not a false messiah. He's the true king of kings and the Lord of lords. And the scripture tells us that all who receive his mark, who bear his marks in their body, they're going to be safe. They're the ones that are going to be blessed and all the others are going to be burned. Now, as we finish tonight, I'll remind you one more time that if you are a Christian, you don't have to go through these times. If you're saved right now, when Christ comes back, you'll be taken out of this world, and so you'll never experience any of these things that we've been talking about uh, in, in this number 666 and all those other things. You don't have to worry about that. But there are people that are not saved right now, and they will go into this time of tribulation when the Lord comes back. Now, some people are going to be saved during that time. Uh, there will be, I think, a vast multitude of people that will be saved. But I've repeated my position on this several times before, that I do not believe that anyone who has heard the gospel presentation before Christ comes will actually believe it afterward. And so that means that there is a, an imperative that's placed upon us. I mean, there, there is a duty here. There's something that you don't want to miss. You do not want to go away without knowing Christ as the Savior. We have no idea when this is going to take place. It could happen this very night. Before you go to bed, Jesus could come back, or your life might be snuffed out, and then you'd go to hell anyway. I wouldn't want to take that chance. I mean, I would put my trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, and then I'd be assured that I'm going to heaven when Christ comes back again. And I hope that you have that assurance. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time that you've given us tonight. As we've looked into your word, these are terrible times that are coming. Lord, you are the righteous judge. You will judge this world. No one is going to escape judgment. Those of us who have put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ have already received a judgment of sorts, and that is that the Lord Jesus Christ has borne our sins for us and will stand before God in judgment not for the sins that we have committed, but for the rewards that we will receive for our faithfulness to you. But Lord, we pray for those who don't know you now because they will stand at a judgment if they leave this world, a judgment in which there is no hope. Uh, condemnation has already been set. And Lord, I just pray that you might lead someone out of that tonight. Show them that they need to receive you as Savior even at this very moment. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.